So I want to let everybody know that you do not live, need to live in the prison of your own mind, that we can actually all have happy, connected, joyful, beautiful lives, and we don't need the stories in our head that tell us otherwise. Yes, there's stuff that happens. Yes, there's stuff that you have to deal with. Yes, there's work we need to do, but we can make the mental space through which we do it much, much easier for ourselves. And it's my you know, sincere hope and dream that everybody recognizes that the stories that we tell ourselves can be changed and the scarcity thinking that we feel can be fulfilled in, in ways that we do not recognize now in order for us to live happier both as individuals and as a society. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Every Friday, I share a newsletter which mentions what I'm learning new, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, or just anything. You can find the newsletter link at https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. And today's guest is Ariel Garten. Ariel is a neuroscientist, innovator, and entrepreneur whose driving purpose is to empower and help others overcome mental obstacles in order to live healthy, happy lives, and reach their maximum potential. Ariel is the co-founder of Muse, the brain-sensing headband. Muse is the award-winning wearable technology that assists and trains meditation and mindfulness. Before founding Muse, Ariel was not only trained as a neuroscientist and psychotherapist, but also started her own international clothing line while she worked in labs researching Parkinson's disease and hippocampal neurogenesis. Ariel's fascination with the interconnections between science, neuroscience, emotion, and design stems from her unique background in psychotherapy, neuroscience, design, and fashion. In this conversation, Ariel talks about her creative process, spirituality and consciousness, meditation practice, unconditional love from her mom, and much, much more. She also guides us through an inner critique exercise to cultivate more self-love and self-worth. Now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ariel Garten. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is my honor, complete honor to have you on the show. We have so many things that we can talk about. I'm wondering where should we start from? So I'm thinking that you come from different backgrounds, neuroscience background, psychotherapy background, fashion designing background so so how about we start with your fashion designing experience how did you get into that creative mode of fashion designing oh i think i was born creative as we all are and i was lucky enough <laughs> to be able to continue to practice that creativity as i grew up so you know that delight that little kids have in making things and building things and creating things and the lack of self-consciousness i was able to maintain into my 20s. And I love to just craft and build and make. And I particularly liked clothing because it was very immediate. It was something that I could create and that I could have a relationship with. I could wear, I could wear out into the street. And it gave me a canvas upon which to explore in multiple dimensions. So in my, I was trained both as an artist and a scientist. So in my fashion design, I would speak a lot about different scientific concepts and principles through fashion. And actually, that's part of the work that led me, like part of the piece that led me into creating Muse, what this are relationship scientific, between art and science. What are those scientific principles and concepts? In brief, if you can explain to us. Sure. Oh, there were so many of them. I did a whole collection that was based on physics and had um, rocks and weights and used different geometries to hold the garments up. I did another, I had a skirt that people loved that was the phrenology skirt, and it had 37 pockets that referenced the 37 different parts of the subconscious according to phrenology. And in each of these little pockets, there were clear pockets, I would have little bits of stuff that I would find around, like 
you know, broken doll's arms or cocktail umbrellas or buttons. And people would invariably come to the skirt and they would start to create stories around it. They'd be like, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> I had a doll that was like that. And then it, we, you know, I took it on a walk with an umbrella. And all of a sudden, they're starting to create these narratives out of stuff that had no meaning. So in the same way in our own minds, we have all of these objects of our consciousness, all of these items that float around in our head through which we create meaning. And we pull them together in ways that, you know, are unique to us, that speak to our own experience, and that aren't necessarily that meaningful or relevant, but we make meaning out of the world. And so the skirt actually spoke to our human tendency to create meaning. Our mind always creates different meaning all the time. We all have different perspectives, different meanings. You use the word consciousness. How do you define consciousness? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. There's lots of different definitions. So when we go from a more neuroscientific definition, consciousness is the items that are within your awareness at any given moment. And consciousness is created by the sort of sum total of the items that are in, in the space of your awareness. And interestingly, sort of meditation language speaks very similar to neuroscience in this. There's, there's a relationship between the two because in meditation, we speak about our awareness and the ability to be aware and to attend to things in the present moment, the things that we're conscious of. In kind of meditation and spiritual language, there's also a greater definition of consciousness, which is the idea that it, there is a thing that is doing the perceiving or the awareness. And it often believes that this single thing, this is not actually singular at all. The consciousness is something that's much greater and connects all of us, like a kind of larger life force or awareness that we can tap into, which the neuroscientific definition definitely does not include. <laughs> Do you believe in a spirituality? That's another, you've got the best questions. This is like literally the best interview <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Do I believe in spirituality? So I am in many ways a materialist. You know, as a neuroscience, you learn that as a, as a scientist, you learn that molecules interact with one another and those interactions of molecules create the human experience. It, it, it's very reductivist, but there's also so many things that and science cannot explain. For example, the creation of will and human will out of the simple moving of chemicals up and down a concentration gradient. Like in our brain, it is literally just chemicals bouncing against one another and landing into receptors and, and moving in ways that are really quite random along different concentration gradients that create our experience of life, our hearing, our seeing, our feeling, and our will. And there is still no definition, no explanation for how that bridge is gapped between molecules moving on a concentration gradient and the act of having uh, will or intention or the ability to actually do something and make choices. So. There is so much that is unexplained that we do not know. I know myself, I Reiki practitioner. And so although there's not necessarily a great scientific explanation for the way that we can feel energy move through the body, I also know that I've had a deep felt experience of it. You know, I've had a, a deep felt experience of things that cannot yet be explained and probably someday will be. If that experience cannot be explained, I'm thinking whether should I ask you about explaining that or not. So I would, I would love to ask you, what did you learn from that experience you felt? So in the felt experience of Reiki, for example, it is the sensation of energy moving through your body. I could look at it from a, you know, scientific perspective in terms of the explanations that we currently have, you know, it's, it was the desire, the intention, or the expectation of having an energetic activation in my body, which then gave me sensory experience that was, you know, real. Or I could look at it from a more metaphysical experience and say, you know, there is some energy in the universe, which was then being harnessed or moved through my system in a different direction, in, in a different way or unblocked. I don't know which is right. I do know that I have a felt experience that I then create meaning from. And when I create meaning from it, it becomes meaningful to me and therefore helpful in my own 
growth and development. So I then perceive it as me opening, you know, opening my body to something that is greater than myself. I perceive it as a connection to something that is greater than myself, which gives me sensations of peace and calm and clarity, which gives me the strength to be able to look at things that may be difficult and to be able to let go of them or open them more easily, which gives me a, a feeling of greater ease to tap into love, for example. So the process facilitates in me a set of processes that to me are quite supportive and, and allow me to evolve and grow and, and unstick some of my habitual patterns. What are some of your spiritual practices that you have in your daily life? Sure. So religion-wise, I was brought up as Jewish. Uh, my grandparents were all Holocaust survivors, all four of them. So 75% of my family on one side, 50% of my family on the other side, all the ancestors all perished in the Holocaust of the generation that was alive during the time, 75% and 50% of them perished. So, you know, I've been brought up in the Jewish tradition, though never had a particularly strong connection to God. Again, you know, there's this scientific, it could exist, it could not exist, I'm, I'm open to all. In terms of the practices that I do, so, you know, honoring the Jewish traditions, and then also, I have a host of meditation practices that I do regularly. So each morning, I'll do a focused attention practice. I often do laughter yoga with myself, so a laughter meditation practice, which really opens me out. I will feel sensations of love in my body. Now with the pandemic and you know all of the intensity of 2020 and the fear that has been created on so many different fronts, I regularly do a safety practice where I profuse myself with sensations of safety. And I'll just feel every single molecule of my body is totally and completely safe because at that moment inside my house, it is. And when I do that, it allows my nervous system to just drop and the cortisol levels to drop and the adrenals to reset because we get so easily caught up in the sensation of, oh no, you know, there's something wrong. There's a virus, there's a fear. <laughs> and so we, we stay ramped on that level. And when we return to a place that is truly safe, like inside our homes with our masks off and our hands washed, our body still doesn't return to that place. So I really spend a lot of time and attention letting myself know that I am safe so that I can approach the world from that place of, of trust and then make smart decisions and take smart action, but not because I'm in a place of fear. How much time do you spend in your meditation practice? It's a hard question to answer because the practice continues throughout the day. So you can have the, you know, you have the formal experience of sit, which is maybe 10 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening in various practices. But then throughout the day, if I notice tension in my body, I will release it. Throughout the day, I will reset and, you know, make the intention to be aware and present to what I'm doing. When I'm playing with my kid, there is so much of a meditation practice because you're, you're, Mind tries yes. to draw you to what you're making for dinner and, you know, the thing you're still thinking about at work. And, you know, it's those moments where you go, nope, don't need you. Back to focused attention in the present moment with, you know, making Lego with my child. So, so there's no short answer to how long it is. Once you, once you build the practice into your life, it becomes a way of living. So your formal meditation practice is about 10 minutes every morning. Yeah, longer. So my, when my husband takes my kid to school, I get a much longer practice because I'm home alone. When I take my kid to school, it's shorter. So it <laughs> Got it. And then in the evening, it's about 20 minutes. So I have a follow-up question on that. Sure. What do you do in the morning, in the first 60 to 90 minutes of your morning when you wake up? Oh, I have the best morning. I'm so lucky. Like so, 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 so lucky. So my kid comes in at 7 a.m., and I either have woken up a little bit before him, in which case I'll do a short practice lying in bed, just enjoying the act of living. Then he comes in at seven and he'll wake me up. I'm usually already awake and crawl into bed and say some silly things and cuddle under the blankets. Uh, then we go, <laughs> it's, it's the best. It's really the best. Then, you know, there's the kid morning of brushing teeth and all those just, you know, real human things that you do. And then we have a routine of play, 
getting dressed, play, breakfast, play, leave the house, and then empty the dishwasher. That's what I do. And then, (laughs) the complete honest answer. Love it. Yeah. Then it's after he's gone, either with my husband or after I've taken him to school, then I get my formal meditation time, and then I get to start my morning's work. This morning was a special morning. When my husband came home, my husband and I sat down and played the piano together. As a listener to this podcast, I'm wondering, Ariel sounds somebody who has a lot of labels, a lot of education, a lot of experience in her life, coming from psychotherapy, neuroscience background, playing piano, being a fashion designer. Would you attribute your creativity and innovation to your mom, who was or who is a renowned artist, Vivian? Yes, I attribute all of it to my mother. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up, so I grew up with a mom who is an amazing, amazing artist. Her name is Vivian Reese, and she does these large-scale oil on canvases. You can check out her website, vivianreese.com, or this is going to sound silly, but look at her Instagram and you will see how much creativity just comes out of her. I saw that. Yeah. So she makes these amazing works of art, but she also creates in every medium. So she makes these incredible dishes that she photographs beautifully and they're delicious and they're so visually engaging and she's gorgeous home that she decorates. Just everything she does is creative. So I really grew up with the idea, A, that beauty mattered and that being able to make things that were beautiful experiences mattered and that art and experience mattered. And B, I would see her take a blank canvas and, you know, in three hours I would come back and it would be covered in the most beautiful, alive drawings and creations. And actually I'm, I'm sitting here looking at two of her paintings right now as I, as I do this podcast and they are just so alive. And so from her, I learned that from a blank space, you can create whatever you imagine. And for me, that was meaningful both in terms of you know art and design but also meaningful in terms of designing what i wanted for the world and that's really where a lot of the inspiration for muse came which was both a marriage between neuroscience and technology and really human experience a beautiful human experience and as a business creating something where there was this huge gap there was this huge need for people to learn how to meditate in ways that could be more helpful and i could imagine that i could like create this thing which ultimately became used, that I could create a brain-sensing headband that could help you meditate and that that could come to be. And it was the same as her blank canvas with art on it, like making something happen. I'm like, here's this blank stage and I know I could create this. What other lessons did you learn from your mom? So my mom is an incredibly just <laughs> generous, you can tell I'm in love with my mother, which, which is a good thing. She's a really, really like unconditionally loving human being really unconditionally loving to me as a child. And so I learned being unconditionally loving to my own child and ultimately unconditionally loving to myself. But there was a bit of a gap there in learning it to me. So, you know, we all, to a certain degree, believe we are some amount of unsafe, unloved, and unworthy. And I truly believe that if everybody truly felt fully safe, fully loved, and fully worthy, we would all be, you know, self-actualized individuals and all of the scarcity thinking and aggression and all of the stuff that we do to try to fill our holes, we wouldn't need to do because we'd have no holes. So in my life, I always, I had the worth piece. I felt that. I was given that deep sense of worth by my parents. And the safety piece being a five foot two female you know, a small female, there was always a gap in the sensation of safety. Although I think I felt, you know, more secure than most. I, you're always told like, oh, don't go there. It's not safe. Don't, don't speak to that guy. That's not going to be safe for you. So there's always this imagery in my mind of, of some potential of unsafety. And then on the love piece, it's funny because, you know, my mom unconditionally loved me and I knew I was fully lovable, but it always felt like there was a bucket that needed to be filled over and over and over again, and that I needed my mother to keep giving me that unconditional love to have it. And I had this really profound insight about two years ago. I'm, I'm 41, so you know, this 39, I've, I finally had this profound insight that the unconditional love that she gave me was a gift that I have. There's no hole in the bucket. It doesn't run out anywhere. You know, the unconditional love was received from her. 
and I am unconditionally loved, period. That's it. And I don't need to keep asking for it again. I don't need to keep seeking and getting it. And that was a real moment of my own maturation and transformation. And, you know, until that moment, there's always the fear. It's like, you know, well, what if, what if something happens to your parent and then they won't be, they won't be there for you in that way? And that moment was a real turning point where it's like, oh, actually, I, I have the thing I needed from her. I don't keep needing it. I am whole and complete in that way. Would you mind speaking about that event that happened two years ago? Anything that you would like to share? Sure. By the way, this is the coolest interview I've ever done. Nobody ever <laughs> asks so these much. questions. It's, it's really delightful to be able to sort of just share my personal experience in this way. And I hope it's in some way helpful or inspiring. I, I lo I'm loving it. So, yeah, two years ago, I was lying on my couch. And sorry, it's starting to rain here. So you might hear some of the rain sound in the background. If there's a funny noise, it's just the sound of the rain on my roof. So two years ago, I was lying on my couch. And I was really wanting to touch in deeply to the feeling of safety. It was maybe less than two years ago. Yeah, I was really wanting to touch in deeply to the feeling of safety and self-love. And I was working on self-love. And it was this point where I was looking at myself and wondering why. It was actually my husband that brought it up. He's like, why are you looking for approval from me? I'm like, that's funny. You know, I, I didn't imagine that I was looking for approval from me, but let me, let me look at this. And then I looked back to my childhood relationships and there was the sensation that, you know, I needed that approval to be loved. And this is another one that, that tends to stick to me. I needed to be like, I needed to be smart to be loved. That was something that was deeply embedded. As a smart kid, you're always told like, oh, you know, you're so smart, you're so smart. And then that reinforcement becomes not something that's reassuring. It becomes something that you then need again and that you assume if somebody's not saying it, there may be something wrong. So I realized that I had a, a, an attachment to that. And so as I was digging through these, these sort of deeply buried, subtle drives inside me for approval and recognition in those ways, I was trying to tease out what I thought it was that was missing, you know, what, what was the core piece. And in each case, it was tied to the idea of being loved. You know, you need X or Y is a show of love or X or Y is a demonstration of love or the absence of, you know, the smartness or the approval may mean the absence of love. And so then I had to dig under that to look at what my relationship with the experience of being loved was and was it withheld from me of course it wasn't withheld from me it was i was unconditionally loved like i i i had that very rare gift and even with this unconditional love i didn't get the feeling that i would always be unconditionally loved that that was a persistent or eternal state it seemed like momentary or or short term and i just had this light bulb moment of the recognition that actually no that that unconditional love was was a gift that is given once and then is inside you it is and that was mine and that was a gift that was given to me and will will always be there and it persists whether it is being actively given or not it 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 is so that was that was my moment of like just as soon as i recognized it was like oh like this thing that i was holding myself up with just released and everything. Like I dropped down three floors of like just depth of comfort in my own being. There's nothing that I need to await for. There's nothing, nothing, you know, I need to do this for and then it, it just is. And the sense of isness brought, brought such an amazing calm and peace. And then all of the fear that I had, you know, it's, these are, these are really subtle fears, but the subtle fears I had around my mom and her wellness, and she's quite well. Or, you know, what might happen someday, all of those also released as I recognized that this thing was there and not, not constantly needed. So that desire, that need, that urging, that yearning, the yearning dissipated. And that really is, you know, we looked at this from a Buddhist perspective. It is the, the, 
the snuffing of those yearnings and the snuffings of those desirings and that the recognition that the isness just is and that's okay and there's there's no need to fight there's no tension there's no worry that there's no concern about the future it just is the isness is here it was it was a real like transformational moment thank you for explaining your story ariel i really appreciate that we we all have i mean i will speak for myself i i always tell myself i don't need approval for others i love myself i am this i am that but i recognize sometimes so i desire approval from others and that happens only in loving relationships with friends and only in the loving relationships in a you know work environment i really do not desire approval but it comes on and off in my loving relationships so ariel i would love to ask you what steps or measures or practices did you do to really unwrap and recognize this attachment for approval so i can't recall exactly what i did you know it's these these things are cumulative you work on it a little bit every day you build your meditation practice every day which allows you to simply observe what's going on inside and you build your meditation practice which allows you to to see an urge or an experience as such and not be pulled by it and not be sucked into it and to be able to have objectivity and 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 metacognition and distance from it so you know the the basic meditation practice you know allowed me the the skill to be able to observe this and then there was an inquiry around why was it you know what is it that i'm seeking why am i seeking this and then there was the return to the earlier archetypes and the earlier experiences that that set or built this then there was a confrontation with those not a, a violent confrontation just like a a confrontation with them and to say like what you are here but this is not relevant to me now i i see that there's a gap like let's figure out how to fill this gap for you and in this case the gap was filled by filled by an insight about my mother in other cases doing practices like this you know i might even take the younger me and put me on the wall and then look at her and see what she needs and maybe you know she'd be she'd be missing love or appreciation or whatever in a particular situation and so i would beam that sensation to her this is a classic nlp exercise i'd beam that sensation to her and watch the younger me transform what advice um, would you give to your younger self now in general i would just say like life is amazing go and enjoy it dive into it do it which is which is what i did as my younger self but if i was you know going through a particular practice it would be relevant to to whatever difficulty she was experiencing in that past and then i would give her the emotional support i would give the emotional support to my younger younger self so that she could transform so that therefore my stuck belief or stuck emotional experience about something could transform in in today and then i would replace it with the more useful belief or perspective of my adult me at what age did you start meditation ariel it's a good question So I tried it in various forms from a young age. I think about 8 I would like you know read books on astral projection and and be fascinated by it but never actually succeeded in knowing exactly what it was or how to do it. I remember seeing a sign like a paper sign on a lamp post always around my corner for a Buddhist sit group and I think by the time I was a teenager I would go occasionally to the Buddhist temple that was not too far away and I would I would just sit on a Sunday morning or you know Wednesday afternoon but I really had no idea what I was doing or 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 why or what it was just a sort of you know cool and fascinating experience that I was fascinated like interested in and then it wasn't until I was actually oh so then I was trained as a psychotherapist and in psychotherapy by the early 2000s meditation was really a frontline approach to trauma and anxiety and depression and so that kind of started my more formal experience of meditation but even such i was a terrible meditator like my brain would bounce all over the place i really didn't have the patience for it and the attention to it and i was also doing so many things simultaneously the thought that my mind was going to be quiet was actually antithetical to me it didn't just didn't make sense or resonate with me but i'd be teaching my patients to meditate because 
it was going to be helpful for their anxiety and depression. And that sort of was part of the impetus to create Muse. And then in my late 20s, early 30s, as I began creating Muse with my co-founders, Chris Amini and Trevor Coleman, and began building it as a meditation tool, that's really when my own meditation practice started. And I have to say completely honestly, I actually learned how to meditate with Muse. You know, after all the sort of futzing around and trying, it was once I actually sat down, slipped on a Muse, and as we were like building it very early on, used our very early neurofeedback that let you know when you were in focused attention and when your mind was wandered and reinforced you for staying in focused attention. After a couple of weeks of doing that, it was like, oh, this is what meditation is. Oh, like this is what they were doing sitting there in the monastery. This is, this is what I was trying to go for and didn't have the patience to be with or sit with. And that was the beginning of my practice. So Ariel, I want to ask you and... Let's talk about the Muse more in detail. It is a brain-sensing headband. So how do we use this product or a tool in our day-to-day life? Sure. So Muse is a EEG device that tracks your brain during meditation. And it's really just like a Fitbit for your meditation, but instead of being around your wrist, it's around your head. It's a slim little device. And what it does is it gives you real-time feedback to know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering, so when you're in the meditation zone. So we all know that meditation is good for you, but it can be really hard to do because there's no little coach or guru sitting inside your head telling you when you're doing it right, when you're unfocused, and reminding you when your mind has wandered and being like, hey, mind's wandered, come on back. And so as we're building Muse, we recognize that we could do just that. And so what Muse does is it gives you real-time audio feedback on your mind. The metaphor uses your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking or distracted or thinking about your grocery list, you literally hear your mind as stormy. And as you come to quiet, focused attention, it quiets the storm. So it's uh, translating your brain activity, focused versus noisy, into guiding sounds that are quiet versus loud. And it really teaches you what's going on in your mind and really reinforces you to stay in that state of focused attention. And then after the real-time feedback, After the experience, you get data. You get charts and graphs and scores that actually show you what your brain was doing, that show you their progress, and with a motivational architecture that really keeps you meditating every day. Have you used this tool on your son? (laughs) So my son's only four. His head is still too small for a muse, but certainly I've been teaching him, you know, the very basics of meditation practices since he was little, just focusing on his breath, counting, recognizing your change in state, and and bit by bit we're getting there. So how has your meditation practice changed before using Muse tool and after using Muse? So before using Muse, my meditation practice was short, unproductive, and frustrating. (laughs) 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 It's basically how I would describe it. You know, my mind would would wander. I would then be frustrated by my own mind wandering. I had unrealistic expectations about what it was supposed to be doing, you know, the quiet that I was looking for. And so I would feel like I wasn't good at it and I would get up and just do something else. And there was nobody there to know that I wasn't doing my meditation and that, you know, it was only four minutes and, and then I left. And then with Muse, it really, it was literally like somebody there holding my hand, somebody there you know, that little sound letting me know like, yep, you're doing it right. Nope, you're off track. Come on back. And it made it much easier to just sit and have, you know, have a thing that I could focus on the sound. It's like, okay, sounds quiet. Great. Sounds noisy. Oh, doing the wrong thing. Sounds quiet again. Great. And I describe it as like, it's like the first time I ever heard a love song on the radio. So when I was 15, I fell in love for the first time. And prior to that, I would listen to all of these songs about love on the radio. And I was like, why do so many people sing about love? Like, what's this big deal? Like, why is every song about love? And then I had my first experience of love. And I listened to a song on the car radio about love. And it was just like, whoa, oh my God, I get it. Yes, I know what they're talking about. This is the best thing ever. Yes. And after meditating with Muse for the first time, like that's Honestly, the experience I had is like, oh, this meditation thing. Now I get it. Like that, those 2,000 years of wisdom that I've been reading, now it makes sense. Now I know what they were saying. <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, it was really like, you know, that first, that first like light bulb finally went off. 
In one of your blog posts, you talk about it is okay to suck at meditation. <laughs> And there are seven ways that you can practice meditation in a right way. So what is the number one way according to you, apart from muse, to practice meditation? <laughs> so it, first of all, it's totally okay to suck at meditation because we all suck at meditation. Like that's, that's basically what meditation is. It's a practice that we are forever imperfect at until at some point when we are not, and then there's the next lesson to learn. And so your brain never goes completely quiet. It, it may eventually, but that's not a realistic expectation at this point. And your job as the meditator is to simply observe. Observe when your mind is wandering and then have the opportunity to either follow your wandering mind or make a choice to come back to your focused attention. It's a choice <laughs> point. It's very simple. And you have the opportunity when your mind wanders to practice kindness and self-compassion and, and let go of self-judgment. It's like my mind has wandered. That's an activity that happened. Now I have a choice. I can let it wander or I can choose to return to my breath. Now I'm going to choose to return. And that act of just noticing that your mind has wandered and returning, that is an extraordinary act that builds your brain, that has literally built your prefrontal cortex, the muscle of your attention by doing that. So it is okay to suck at meditation because every time your mind wanders is another opportunity to notice and return and build what in meditation is known as the attentional loop. That is the attentional, the notice and the return. And that's kind of like the bench press for your brain at the gym. Like, you know, if, if meditation was an exercise at the gym, that noticing and returning would be the crunch. It would be the bench press. It would be the thing that makes your mind and your meditation stronger. It is like a mental gym. That is the thing. So it's totally okay that your mind wanders. Let it, you know, it can wander a thousand times. Great. You know, our brains are creative spaces. That's awesome. The question is just what do you do once your mind wanders? And that's where the teaching comes in. So that's why it's not just okay to suck at meditation. It's great to suck at meditation. <laughs> Every one of those mind wanderings is an opportunity. In my meditation practice, I have this practice for 20 to 30 minutes every day. Sometimes You feel that in 15 minutes, first 15 minutes, you are just stuck in one story. That story is moving on and on. And after 15 minutes, I realize, okay, I'm aware of that story. Now I can <laughs> change to something else. Awareness, it creates awareness. It generates deeper level of consciousness. Ariel, I want to ask you about inner critique. How, how we can kill our inner critique to... be more loving, kind to ourselves and others. Sure. And the rain's really coming down here, if you can hear it. So our inner critic is that little voice inside your head that's constantly telling you not nice things about you. So, you know, my inner critic is often telling me things like, my hair looks stupid. You know, our inner critic, or that was silly that you did that. Or, you know, our inner critic is constantly just telling us not nice things about this. Like, you're not good enough. You should have tried harder. They won't like you. Your outfit doesn't look good. The presentation wasn't good enough. It's, it's constant in, in most of our minds. That is the joy of this inner critic that we have. And most of us simply accept these words from our own self. And that's really weird because like if somebody else told it to us, we get pretty angry. And if somebody told our best friend these things, we get really angry and defensive. Yet we just accept these things in our own mind. And we typically accept them because we think that they're supposed to be there and that they are in some way making us better and pushing us to do better. Well, the truth about the inner critic is that you do not need it. It's actually not pushing you to do better. It actually demotivates you every time you hear it and tends to reduce work quality. and make the process of doing anything far more painful than it needs to be. So one exercise, would you like me to guide an inner critic exercise for the audience right now? Please. Cool. All right, everybody, we're going to, this is your opportunity to kill your inner critic um, or to lovingly flick away that inner critic. So first of all, I want you to imagine, and please do this along with me, I want you to imagine something that your inner critic said to you today. So for me, I'm just going to take that my hair looks stupid. Nishant, do you have something that your inner critic told you? That I should have spent more time in preparation of this podcast to learn more about Ariel. <laughs> 
And I have to tell you, so that's that's really fascinating because you are the most prepared interviewer I have ever had. <laughs> Thank you for all your compliments. But but it's true. You know, I could tell based on all your questions how much re- work and research you've done because most interviewers do none. And I wouldn't expect you to have any more preparation. And actually, any more preparation wouldn't have made a better interview. So that voice is simply your inner critic telling you that you did not do good enough when that's not true. You did an extraordinary job. So we're now going to imagine you are walking down the street with your very best friend, somebody you love so dearly. could be your partner, your sibling, your best friend. So for me, I'm walking down the street with my best girlfriend, Rachel, and a stranger walks up to them and tells them the very same thing that your inner critic told you. So imagine that scene. For me, it would be a stranger comes up to my best friend, Rachel, and tells her her hair looks stupid. So imagine that scene for you. What's the sensation that you get when somebody tells your best friend the thing that your inner critic told you? For me, it's it's an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's a sensation of like anger. I want to defend them. Like some jerk comes up to my best friend out of nowhere and tells her her hair looks stupid. Like, what right does he have? What right does anybody have to say that to her? She's beautiful. You know, If somebody came up to you, if I was walking down the street with you and somebody came up to you and just out of nowhere said, you should have been more prepared for that interview, like, how would I feel? I'd want to defend you. I'd I'd tell that jerk, oh my God, like, get out of town. He's amazing. He did a great job. Why on earth would you tell him that? So we feel these desires and these, you know, honest, you know, movements to defend the people we love in our life from these voices and these stories, but we never defend ourselves. And so at this moment, We're going to take that fire that we feel, that desire to defend, that, you know, that belief that what they're saying was incorrect and not useful and direct it at our own inner critics. So I want you to take your inner critic now and find a blank space of wall in front of you, just a place where there's nothing going on. It'll be your own little personal movie theater for a second. You're going to take your inner critic and put it up on the wall, just like you're watching a movie there on the big screen. Mm -hmm. So. What does your inner critic look like? What do you see up there? Right now, it just, I just see that my inner critic is relaxed. Okay. It's relaxed and I'm not judging my inner critic. Wow. I'm, I'm, so, I'm telling my inner critic that I give you A, grade A, that I did what I did. I cannot control what happened now what can i improve from here okay so you you are an advanced student (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that (laughs) that's very cool so what does your so for a lot of people at this point when you put your inner critic on the wall we're going to start by just looking at what it looks like so for some people it's like a a gray cloud or a monster or a witch the only rule is or a little troll the only rule is can't look like you. It's not you. So what does your inner critic look like? What's the like little cartoon character you see there? I see two words, inner critic. Okay. On a canvas. Cool. So some people might see a cloud or if you can't pick something, just just make it a great cloud. So now I want everybody to take their hands, their thumb and their forefinger on either side so that you're going to like pinch your inner critic. And just squish him down a little bit to make him smaller, him or her. So for you, it would be the words. For other people, it would be an image. Just squish that down with your fingers and make it smaller. How does that feel? That feels great. Yeah. Doesn't that feel like some relief? Like, go, go back and squish it again. Make it even smaller. Huh. Yes, yes. Yeah, th- there's a great relief that comes from that. It does. Thank you for walking us through this amazing exercise. I think- yeah, we're, we're two more minutes. We're almost done. So now, communicate to your inner critic and tell it what you need it to know. So for me, I would tell it like, inner critic, you don't need to tell me those things. It's not helpful. It's not useful. You know, get lost. You can tell, this, tell your inner critic the same things you would have told to that stranger. You can push back on him. You know, some people might tell him to F off. Some people might tell him to just lovingly, please, you're not required anymore. I've got You can this. curse. Don't worry, you can curse. <laughs> <laughs> So just tell what you need to tell to your inner critic. 
I am telling my inner critic that you are allowed to be opinionated. You have your own opinions and I'm not going to worry about your own opinions. You say you do whatever you want to do. I will listen to my I will listen to my body, I will listen to my soul what it needs. I'm not going to listen to you at all. You let you do your job. I'm not neglecting you. I'm not forcing you against just do whatever you want to do i will do my job to the best of my ability you keep That's doing your stuff awesome now for other people their inner critic might be really loud and it might make more sense to say so again you're an advanced student you can you can have multiple voices and know which to listen to for some people it might be helpful to just say like inner critic shut up i don't need you you don't need to say anything anymore it's okay get lost so you choose you know the relationship that you would like to have to it and then you can just take it and brush it to the side or flick it away move it to the side and this also comes from the buddhism practice where you talk to your fear you befriend your fear it's just imagining that you are sitting on a bench and you allow your fear to sit next to you and you talk to your fear like you talk to your friend yes so where that buddhist practice comes from part of the theory behind it is that what we resist persists so a little bit different than the inner critic so in the inner critic, you know, we're, we're recognizing it, we're seeing for, for what it is, we're naming it, and we're actually asking it to move aside. Or if you choose, you can choose to befriend it, but you can ask it to either befriend it or move it aside. For a lot of people at the beginner level, it's much easier to, at the beginning to just move it aside. The, with emotions and with a lot of things in our life, what we actually want to do is what you just mentioned, actually befriend them and listen to them because what we resist persists. So if you have a fear, for example, and fear is, a, fear is a great example, because when you have a fear and it's something you're afraid of, you don't want to look at it. And then that avoidance creates more fear. And then we have a fear that has grown even bigger, and then we're avoiding it more, which is creating more fear. And so there's this huge resistance and all this energy spent pushing away the experience of fear. But fear is only a sensation. Like, fear is not the actual thing that we're afraid of. Fear is the experience of fear. There could be a black hole, you know, a, there's a ditch 12 feet away from you. And you can be afraid of that dish, you're standing 12 feet away. And you can feel the fear building and building and building. But that thing that you're afraid of, the experience that you're having, the sensation of fear, it's not the ditch that's 12 feet over there. It is just the sensation of fear that's with you here. So when you actually stop and look at the fear, and feel the fear, and befriend the fear, and don't resist the fear. It's just a sensation. It rises, and it falls, and it moves through you. I'm like, what was the big deal? So you we can all stand have fears. By, we, we all have fears, and they're just fears. And what you learn in meditation is that you're able to handle sensation. You are able to handle discomfort and feeling. They're just feelings. Not to belittle them, but to make them easier to approach. It's just an experience that you're having experience that comes, that rises, that falls, that does some stuff in your body and then leaves. And ultimately, you are fine. You can handle experience. You do not need to resist. And what we're able to open to can flow through. And what we resist persists. Yes. And now, since we have four minutes left, I would love to talk to you about your Instagram post where you were talking about Passover Jewish holiday and your son was singing the four questions. What is going here and why is it so different than usual? We can continue to pass on the meaningful lessons of our situations today, whatever they turn out to be to our children and our children's children. So Ariel, I want to ask you what meaningful lessons you try to teach or talk about to your children? Wow. So in that particular post, that was Passover uh, 2020. Passover is typically in April. In, in March, we all went into lockdown. So this was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And you know, it was the first holiday. Christians would have celebrated Easter shortly thereafter. So this was the first holiday without, for our family, without the ability to be together. And Passover is particularly meaningful to my family because as I mentioned, we are Holocaust survivors, and there was this huge exodus from Eastern Europe to the free land of North America. And it was amazing 
And so Passover for us is always very meaningful because it is a story of Exodus. And for us, it was amazing to, for the first time, be in this new situation. I'm in Toronto. My mom is down in New York. We couldn't be together. We couldn't celebrate in the way that we do every year. We did it over Zoom. We had to adapt and shift. And the holiday took on a whole set of new meanings in this new context where there was hilariously a plague, which is also in the Passover story, that caused us to adapt our behavior, but that we could still continue to learn the lessons that the Passover story teaches us and to pass those lessons along even in new contexts. Thank you so much, Ariel. And I, before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you, where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Sure. If you go to choosemuse.com slash welcome, you can find more about me and Muse and the stuff that I think about and talk about. So that's choosemuse, C-H-O-O-S-E-M-U-S-E dot com slash welcome. I mean, you can also see pictures of the Muse, this crazy device that I've been describing, and learn more about the science and the neuroscience behind it too. And my last question to you is, what is the impact you want to have on this world? So I want to let everybody know that you do not live, need to live in the prison of your own mind, that we can actually all have happy, connected, joyful, beautiful lives, and we don't need the stories in our head that tell us otherwise. Yes, there's stuff that happens. Yes, there's stuff that you have to deal with. Yes, there's work we need to do. But we can make the mental space through which we do it much, much easier for ourselves. And it's my you know, sincere hope and dream that everybody recognizes that the stories that we tell ourselves can be changed and the scarcity thinking that we feel can be fulfilled in, in ways that we do not recognize now in order for us to live happier both as individuals and as a society. And now I'm borrowing this quote from your work. If we are free of limitation and fear, we can create and thus transform our experience of the world. So thank you so much, Ariel. It was a wonderful, heartfelt conversation with you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. And I will reiterate, you were the best prepared interviewer <laughs> I've ever had and not an ounce more preparation was needed. So, so any much, thoughts again. that you have to yourself that, you know, something that you did was shy of or not good enough were actually incorrect. And you can look back at them and thank them for the job they're trying to do, but let them just go on their way because they're not needed. Because you are whole and full and complete and incredibly capable. I appreciate you for that. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again. Okay.